Uh, my name is Muzaffar Chishti. I work for MPI in Director's Office at NYU School of Law. You have our bios of all our distinguished speakers. I will not really use any time to repeat it. They actually, none of them need an introduction. But they come from three very important perspectives on this debate. And you know, this is obviously a law and policy conference. I think we'll discuss a little more law than we have discussed in other panels and hopefully a little policy as well. Uh, so the broad theme we picked for this panel, which I think we have detected has been true for a lot of immigration stuff uh, since at least this president took over, is that some very important issues have been sort of getting shuttled between and among three branches of the government. In one way of saying these are walling from one branch of the government, you could also say every each branch of the government is sort of hitting, putting the can in the other person's lap and hoping the can will stop there somewhere. And many of these cans haven't stopped. So this is our chance to see where the cans are and where they will finally land. Uh, so I'll begin this by uh, asking uh, questions of our panelists more in a conversational style so that we could get to many topics uh, than uh, sort of one issue only for a long time. So let me start with Cecilia, uh, because she represents the ACLU, which many people regard has been the president's thorn on the side uh, <laughs> more than any other organization. Our last count is that the ACLU has brought more than 100 cases against this administration. Now, this is a law school. I'm sure every single law student here will salivate talking about all those 100 <laughs> cases, but we'll stick to only two or three. So if you don't mind starting with DACA, and I think this is at least one audience in which I don't have to say what DACA stands for. <laughs> uh, so start with DACA. The, the can has been shuttled by three branches of the government. The president en ended the program. Lawsuit was brought almost the very next day to challenge the injunction. The president said this is the job of Congress to do this. And David is here. He'll defend his institution. Congress landed up doing nothing because Congress could argue that the courts were busy, uh, why they didn't need to, to intervene because courts have provided the protection. And finally, that can has to stop somewhere, and we believe it'll we, stop. We passed the bill in the House. I just want to point that out. <laughs> I, uh, that, so uh, nothing that, is a little inaccurate. I just want that to. they will be. Uh, no, I'll tell. I'll give you sure credit what happened in Congress, but it hasn't been resolved in Fair Congress. Enough. So uh, on on November 12th, the Supreme Court is going to hear an argument on the DACA case. So Cecilia, just tee up for us. Uh, what are the challenges seeking in that case? What is the government's defense? How is the court going to rule, and when is it going to rule? Sure. Thank you, Moose, and thank you to MPI and Clinic and Georgetown for inviting all of us um, to this conference. It's always very uh, illuminating. So Moose mentioned that um, you know I work at the ACLU, and we have indeed filed over 100 immigration-related cases against the Trump administration. Um, but the DACA rescission cases are not one of them. <laughs> I am not actually one of the litigators on that case. I should make that important disclaimer, um, but I have spoken to many of the attorneys who are doing that, including folks from the National Immigration Law Center, from the state of California, from other states and municipalities, um, Make the Road New York, et cetera, et cetera. The, the takeaway that I would highlight both from the DACA rescission cases that are at the Supreme Court now, as well as from every other major 
immigration initiative of the Trump administration. I'd include the Muslim ban, a whole cluster of asylum-related policy changes, the public charge rule, um, rescission of DACA, and also sanctuary city uh, policies of this administration. The lesson from all of the many court battles over all of those issues are twofold. The first lesson is that litigation in support of immigrant communities has never been more important than it has been under the Trump administration. So for all you Georgetown and other law school students here, you're in the right place doing the right thing to get ready to do more of the right thing. Um, even when we have unfortunately lost as with the Muslim ban, where we got injunctions from all of the lower federal courts, but ultimately the state of Hawaii lost in the Supreme Court. We bought time for people. In the case of the Muslim ban, uh, countless people were able to get to the deathbed of a loved one here in the United States, um, attend someone's graduation, be there for the birth of a child, be at an important academic conference or business meeting, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of the rescission of DACA, I'm actually quite optimistic about the DACA case. Um, don't shake that, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite optimistic, but even if, even if the Supreme Court were to rule against um, all of the, um, the, the immigrant groups and states and municipalities who are harmed by the rescission of DACA, that kind of litigation, even when unsuccessful, has so many consequences to protect people. Um, again, to buy people a little more time, buy people some more time with um, documented status, documented status. Um, and it's, it's been a really important vehicle, I think, to um, talk about how we think in this country about immigration. Um, it's important to look at the ways that the asylum issue has been framed, mistakes that people in our own movement, in the immigrants' rights movement, have made, um, mistakes that we've made in talking about path to legal status and citizenship in the past, um, and uh, you know, dreamers themselves have been in the lead, um, both as clients in litigation, as uh, litigants, and as advocates in their own right in pointing out some of those mistakes with respect to people who are already in the United States and lack lawful status. So that's lesson one. Lesson two is kind of the flip side. The big lesson of most of these cases, remember they're, they're, most of these cases raise claims under the Administrative Procedure Act. Most of these cases are about um, the abuse of executive authority about the Trump administration taking to an extreme, an illegal extreme um, laws, the application of laws that are already on the books. And so lesson two is that we cannot rely on the professed goodwill of the executive branch, even when we believe we have friends in the executive branch. We cannot rely on executive branch officials to comport with unwritten norms. Enforcement laws that are repeatedly subject to abusive, illegal, and immoral 
immoral application must be struck from the books one way or another. And that's the second lesson from the Trump administration. Um, the way I see it is that with all of these policies I've mentioned, starting with the Muslim ban and the president's exercise of his um, statutory authority under INA Section 212F, which again was the basis for his action with the asylum ban proclamation, um, he's been picking up loaded guns that are lying around in the Immigration and Nationality Act and in the jurisprudence of plenary power and other old Supreme Court precedents. Um, and to be clear, I should be really clear about one thing as a litigator. All of the policies that our movement has challenged in litigation um, uh, by the Trump administration are illegal under existing law. Okay, I'm not, I'm not taking the position that statutes need to change or precedents need to be overturned um, in order to challenge the legality of these Trump administration policies. But if we no longer want these loaded weapons to be lying around for the next Donald Trump, the next abusive white nationalist, I don't say that lightly, okay, but let's face it, these are white nationalist policies. then we need to exercise the will of the people to make sure that the loaded guns are disarmed. Um, in addition to 212F, we've seen this administration try to abuse expedited removal um, to the statutory uh, maximum, which all previous administrations in both parties have, uh, have you know, put out the conventional wisdom exceeds the bounds of due process the public charge ground for inadmissibility, obviously, which we'll talk about on this panel, um, mass detention, including detention without any individualized hearing. Exceptional, exceptional under US law and civil detention. Immigration detention is the only area in US law where civil detention can be imposed without an individualized hearing on flight risk and danger. Extraordinary, and yet that's been approved by the Supreme Court so far, and efforts to limit Article III court review of removal orders. That also has been something that the Trump administration, like its predecessors, has raised in all of this systemic litigation to challenge these policy moves. So I think going forward, and I know David and, and Kate will talk more about this um, along with Moose, um, we really need to uproot the frame of lawbreaking that has infected immigration policy making since 1996, most pertinently, um, both from the law and from our framing of the policy debate. No more get right with the law, okay? No more securing the border so that we can legalize the status of people in the country already. We really need to look at the people as human beings and look at our system as one that should be imbued with due process and individualized scrutiny of people as individual human beings. That's my takeaway. <clears throat> okay, thank you. So, but just fill this up. So, the case, the case is going to be argued on November 12th. Now, you, you have argued before the Supreme Court very skillfully, but you're not arguing this case. But I lost. I hear there was a, there was a surprise choice 
to, to do this argument. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me who it is and why the, how their choice was made? Sure. Um, again, I'm not one of the litigants, um, but I was peripherally uh, involved in discussions about this. So you probably all know that Ted Olson, uh, noted conservative and member of the Supreme Court bar, will be arguing the case um, in support of, of DACA and against the rescission of DACA. And it was an interesting, um, and I have to say somewhat painful, uh, discussion. There were, there were, what is it, seven, I think seven separate lawsuits coming out of three different districts, uh, federal district courts that are consolidated in the Supreme Court. And um, states and municipalities, I should add, Michael Mongan, who is um, the Solicitor General of California, uh, will be splitting the argument with uh, Ted Olson if um, pending Supreme Court, contingent on Supreme Court approval. That's the proposal that um, the respondents have made. And, um, you know, this is what happens when our issues get to the Supreme Court. Uh, Nancy Moravetz um, is someone who's talked a lot about this dynamic where we have um, a very entrenched Supreme Court bar that is not very diverse, um, that doesn't necessarily represent movements, uh, when movement cases make it to the court. Um, and so there was a pretty fraught discussion, um, I think, among, it's no secret, uh, among the um, various groups of counsel and, and parties. Um, and Ted Olson, uh, you know, to give credit where credit due is due, is someone who um, I think is a choice calculated to appeal to um, as broad uh, uh, a group of justices as possible. It's a decision calculated to win a majority. Um, but I, I must say that um, as someone who uh, is a movement, an, an immigrants' rights movement lawyer, as a civil rights lawyer, as an ACLU lawyer, um, there are so many extraordinarily brilliant uh, lawyers in our movement who could argue this case. And I, I have to just express my personal opinion that um, you know, I think Ted Olson is an interesting and a, and, a, and a brilliant choice in many ways. But I also feel some um, regrets, I guess. Not regrets, since it wasn't my decision, but, uh, but um, a little sad that, that we don't have a movement lawyer up there. So you said that you're optimistic about the DACA case. Could you tell me why you're optimistic when three or four years ago on the DAPA case, which had essentially the same arguments, so we now by know that the four conservative judges probably voted, though we'll never know about the vote because it was a tie decision. Mm -hmm. They probably voted to say DAPA was unlawful. Why would you think that DACA is going to be ruled as lawful when DACA was not seen as lawful? And DAPA well, was not lawful. Obviously, the Supreme Court affirmed the Fifth Circuit by a by a four four tie. Um, I guess two 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 word answer: legal realism. Um, I think that this case is a political one, like many hot button cases in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and I have to believe that uh, there aren't going to be five justices who have the stomach to um, agree with the Trump administration on this one. Um, I think we, um, you know, have seen this court already rule in the uh, census case um, the right way. And I think this, too, DACA would be a road too far. Um, to, 
get to the technical um, reasons why this case is is different, um, you know, there is an argument uh, that as to DAPA, the INA already provided a statutory provision for adjustment of the parents of um, of, of dreamers, uh, which isn't present here. Um, and there's also a reliance interest that here we're talking about rescission of a program that was in effect for years already and that people have come to rely on that. Um, and then finally, um, you know, there is a dynamic here, um, you know, continuing a pattern of the Solicitor General of the United States across several administrations um, uh, providing incorrect, let's say, data to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, there was a, an element here of the government, uh, the Trump administration, saying that um, DACA was applied in, in the Texas case, in the DAPA case. The Trump administration took the position that um, the Obama administration had applied DACA in a boilerplate way, that basically everyone who met the um, uh, qualifications for DACA under the Jay Johnson memo was getting relief, getting the deferred action. Um, and they went into court and said that. Hainan, I think, relied on that. Judge Hainan, um, the Fifth Circuit, I believe, also relied on that. And so the argument here is that um, evidence since then has demonstrated that, in fact, the Obama administration was applying, that the agency, both under Obama and under the Trump administration, was applying discretion. It wasn't a rubber stamp. Um, they weren't handing out DACA to everybody. And so I think that um, correction or development of the record in the subsequent litigation um, will be important. Great. So I'll let you off soon, but let's finish the two of <laughs> So uh, the public charge rule, which a lot of people here are concerned about, was going to go into effect. There were nine lawsuits brought mm -hmm. to tell you about how there are good fallouts from the Trump uh, administration. Fourteen attorneys general of the United States brought an action against public charge. It's, it's active litigation. I heard there was a very lively argument at the Southern District of New York this morning. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us what your view on the public charge challenge is and what's the timeline that people should be looking at? Sure. So um, again, a disclaimer, we are not involved in the public charge litigation. None of the 100 plus cases is the public charge case. Um, but I did speak to um, Nico Espiritu from NILC uh, this morning to get his readout from the California, the Northern District California of California hearing, which took place last week. Um, I think as to timeline, you know, I think almost all the litigants, maybe with the exception of one of the cases, has sought a preliminary injunction. The idea is to get the rule enjoined before the October 15th effective date. Um, as you you told me since I was on the train this morning and wasn't looking, I was preparing for this, not looking at the news, that uh, the readout from New York was positive um, for the, the challengers. The readout was also positive um, on the, the Northern District of California case. I will say that in the Northern District of California, um, the district judge did express some concern about the request for a nationwide injunction. She has requested additional briefing on the scope of injunction had urged the parties to try to reach an agreement on the scope of injunction, which I don't think is going to happen based on no inside information. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've seen um, the Ninth Circuit and the forced return to Mexico case, which is an ACLU case, 
limit um, the preliminary injunction we had gotten from the district court, which was nationwide in scope to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and so I think what you may see, um, if we can read the tea leaves from the, judge, uh, the argument in front of Judge Hamilton, is that she may be um, preemptively trying to narrow the geographical scope of the injunction. <clears throat> okay, but last on this, because we talked about asylum a lot, good part of this conference. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us are surprised by the Supreme Court letting go ahead the new rule <coughs> on, the, on the transit country mm -hmm. uh, need to apply for asylum there. How do you read that affecting the decision of the court on the merits when it comes? Well, um, you know, the Supreme Court didn't purport to rule on the merits at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to take them at their word on that and continue to litigate it. Um, you know, the stay, I, you know, there's no getting around the fact that the stay order um, is painful. Um, and, you know, we've got a situation where, as, you know, the previous panels went through in greater detail, we had the first asylum ban proclamation um, which funneled everyone through ports of entry. Then the administration was bottlenecking asylum applications there. Then they did return to Mexico, which has led to you know estimates of 20,000 people, including kids, um, stuck in Mexico, um, sleeping on the ground outdoors. Um, and then the third country resettlement proclamation. And you know, it, it hurts because we are desperate to get relief for people who um, deserve to have asylum in our country and who've been turned away in every possible um, juncture by this administration. So, you know, I think we take the Supreme Court at its word. We keep going with the litigation, keep litigating it, and build our record. Um, to show the harms uh, to our clients, and that's it. Okay, David, now your turn. Uh, you, we, <clears throat> you are, as, uh, as I said, just you represent the will of the people. And <laughs> so, I mean, you really by now have one of the more yeah. interesting places in this debate. You have spent a lot of time in the administration. You have now spent The last administration, please. On the Hill, <laughs> both as minority and as majority council. Uh, <clears throat> and so just start with the, with the DACA thing. Because sure. obviously the hope was that Congress would intervene in the DACA yeah. case. First on the budget, which it decided yeah. not to do. Uh, but because the, the litigation was going, people were protected. And that's sort of going to end, as we now discuss, yeah. at some point. But you did also manage to pass <clears throat> a really impressive legislation on the House. Uh, and it got nowhere in the Senate. So let me ask you two questions. Sure. If the Supreme Court rules that the end of DACA was lawful, what do you think the Congress is going to do? Sure. And even if the Supreme Court says it was, it was to end it was, was, not, was unlawful, what do you think the court will do, or will it feel off the pressure? Sure. Um, so if, if I can uh, just address, so first of all, thank you to MPI, to Clinic, to Georgetown. I um, appreciate the invitation. Um, so, one, I want to say that I am not as positive, uh, you know, I'm not as optimistic, I should say, about uh, the Supreme Court. I actually think the Supreme I'm Court. Not surprised. I know. Yeah. This is like a not, yeah. this is how we are. Yeah. <laughs> I am the pessimist in the room, normally I am, yes. Um, 
But uh, I actually think that the Supreme Court probably doesn't even get to whether DACA is or is not lawful. I think what they do is they, they say that it is, um, my, my assumption, my guess is that they, they look at the memo that was originally issued, the memo itself says uh, that it can be rescinded at any time, um, either in, you know, to any individual in its entirety. Um, they say this is a, if this is an act of prosecutorial discretion, you don't need to go through APA rulemaking to undo it, and they simply just do that and say whether it's lawful or not, the, uh, the administration has the authority to end it, and they kick it back to the administration and set a timeline. That's, what I, that's my assumption as to what happens. Um, that, it's not what I want to happen. I've been there. <laughs> anyway, um, but I just think that's the way it goes. Um, so, you know, if, if that were to happen, I hope that that means that there is some real uh, thoughtful, uh, and, and, you know, and some, just some, some uh, discussions between uh, both sides about uh, what to do and, and how, I think there will be a lot of, There'll be a lot of Democrats that want to, uh, of course, fix it, and be, there are lots of Republicans that want to do it. And the question is, how do they do it? And is there a trade? Uh, and is there the space, the political space for one? I mean, that's one of the things that we found difficult when we even moved this dream bill, um, this la uh, you know, the one that we just did this at the beginning of this Congress. You know, there were some on our side who wanted to kind of work on bipartisan legislation. There were others that wanted to do something that was more. Uh, kind of pure and democratic friendly and just take a one-sided approach and move that um, and kind of dare Republicans to vote against it. Um, and that's kind of the, 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 the path that we decided to take. But in the end, you are going to need to have Democrats and Republicans uh, in both houses, um, you know, vote for it in order for it to become law and the president to sign it. And that may, in our system, um, require deal-making. And the question is whether that space is there and whether people um, or, you know, act in good faith to try to find a good deal that we can uh, maybe not love but all uh, feel okay about. And I'm not certain that that space is there on either side, um, and that, that would be unfortunate. Yeah, but you're in the middle of the deal-making a yeah. lot. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the kind of things the Republicans will ask for for a darker deal to happen? Yeah, so this, now with, I mean, it's, you know, it's always been, uh, well, it's always been about the border and, uh, and about the, the either the asylum provisions or the unaccompanied children's provisions or other provisions that affect uh, the ability to uh, provide a law enforcement response to people who are coming across the borders, the way that they would put it. Um, so usually it has been in that area where the discussions have really focused. But now with the Supreme, you know, the Supreme Court taking a lot of pressure off of the border, I'm not sure uh, what they come forward with. I mean, they may want to perhaps, knowing that that's an interim measure that's not likely going to be in place for, uh, you know, longer than when the Supreme Court acts again. Uh, they might, you know, see what they can, you know, whether there's a, a, a way of adjusting the, the laws at the border, either when it comes to detention or how to treat asylum seekers or uh, the remain in Mexico or something, you know, to codify some pieces of it in some way. They might come forward with that. Uh, you know, they may seek uh, certain revisions to the immigration uh, system, you know, in eliminating family-based visas and moving them to employment-based or getting rid of the diversity visa program, and they may come with that. Um, but it, it, their hearts are in the border and, and how to, whether, you know, how to affect and deter. I mean, they want, they want tools to be able to deter people from coming across. 
It's unimportant. I think it's not lost on any one of us that the decision is going to come out in the middle of an election season. Yep. Mm -hmm. So just put your political hat on. How do you think that's going to affect the dynamics in Congress on working on DACA? Yeah, and then what if there's an uh, impeachment on top of that? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it's going to be, uh, I, I have no idea how to predict that moves, to be honest with you. I mean, I've been around for a long time. Uh, I, you know, tend to have a decent sense as to what it is that Republicans want or where the deal-making space is and what maybe a good deal looks like and that can get enough Republicans to pass in the House or, you know, maybe gets uh, Republican interest in the Senate. We're working on a different bill now, um, which I, I know we're going to talk about at the end, um, uh, where we're trying to, like, you know, you know, I guess, you know, read the tea leaves right and, 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 and navigate the channels. But um, here I really don't know. I mean, I think things are so different now. The, the, you know, where the deals are in some of these areas are, I, I'm not sure I understand, I fully understand that. I'm not sure that there's anybody in the Hill that really does. Uh, some of our normal partners that we would work with, like Senator Lindsey Graham, are just not in the same place at all, uh, policy-wise or politically. Um, I think that it's, it's going to need people of good faith basically putting down their, their you know, the weapons and, and coming and speaking privately to each other and trying to figure out what is, um, you know, what is good policy and that can, you know, survive politically on both sides. Um, but again, I mean, I, there are, those conversations are not happening now. Um, the, the groundwork for that isn't, isn't in place, and that makes me pretty sad right now. Uh, I think we're trying to build some of that right now because we know we need these good relationships in order to get things across the finish line later. Mm. So we're trying to build uh, through, uh, other, through other measures. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, on the public charge issue. Sure. Uh, so do you think the Congress is likely to act or let the litigation run its course and not yeah. deal with it? Yeah. Well, so, you know, we've acted in certain ways. I just want um, uh, this. So we have, uh, you know, we filed, we filed comments, um, which I thought were very powerful comments, um, where we, I mean, we, we clearly think, and when I say we, I would just say the members that I work for, uh, clearly think that the, the rule is illegal. It is, a, uh, it is far from the longstanding interpretation and the congressional you know, meaning behind the words public charge. I mean, public charge has always meant people who are destitute and can't survive but for you know, government housing and, and, uh, and help. Right? It's, it, it was originally meant people that were de you know, so destitute they were relegated to almshouses or at, back then were called poor houses. Um, or insane asylums, um, not people who can survive perfectly fine on their own or working, but can use a little extra, you know, uh, health care or, or some nutritional assistance to improve the uh, health outcomes of our communities. Uh, that is a bastardization of those words, and we feel very strongly about that. So, we, you know, we did file uh, pretty strong comments that laid out that legal argument and the congressional intent there. We were hoping that that would help. Um, uh, undergird and you know provide a foundation for the litigation. Um, we have also drafted an amicus brief and we're ready to file um, uh, when when the case when the time is right at the appellate level. Um, but you know this is a difficult issue, right? One because it is uh, you know and we've taken strong stands or there are bills that are there uh, to uh, undo the rule. Uh, we can always do a Congressional Review Act, but you, you do need both houses. And at this point in time, even if the House were to pass something, um, it is, you know, there's, 
I, I don't see a path to the, in the Senate. Uh, so it, I just will say one last thing about it. It is also, um, it is an issue that for many Democrats is not, a, is not a difficult issue to talk about, but it's not true for all Democrats. And so um, then the question is, you know, what do we do? And, um, and if not every Democrat is there or is every Democrat is, taking, is comfortable taking that issue on, uh, you know, um, sometimes just, you know, doing something for uh, public appearances sake may not be the smartest move. So it's just, it's, there's a, it's a very difficult, you know, there are a lot of dynamics at play. Um, but we, there are a lot of people that care a lot about it. And um, we, we are very much rooting for and trying to support the litigation right now. Um, and I think we will have to take, uh, you know, we'll cross the bridge when we get to it. Okay, crossing bridge yeah. to asylum. So there was a lot of yeah. conversation here about asylum. Sure. And luckily DACA and and the public charge stuff is stuck in litigation, mm -hmm. so no one is being immediately harmed. Mm -hmm. But on the asylum, mm -hmm. the impact is real and urgent now. Yep. Uh, Supreme Court let go ahead the new rule on this transit country, yep. and the administration is busy signing these so-called third country agreements, which really don't <coughs> meet any of the statutory requirement of a third country. Correct. A safe country requirement. So I think a lot of, I'm, I'm representing a lot of feeling expressed here today that Congress sort of has been missing in action on the asylum issue. So what are you, what are you doing on this? Take <laughs> <laughs> suggestions. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, you know what, I mean, so <laughs> I don't know if, I'm going to start for a little bit here. Um, so we have done some things, right? We, uh, I say that I, I work for uh, two bosses, Mr. Nadler, the Judiciary Chair, and Ms. Lofgren, the Subcommittee Chair, the Immigration Subcommittee Chair. Ms. Lofgren introduced a bill that uh, really sought to reform uh, our entire uh, refugee and asylum system in the hemisphere, uh, creates an entire new framework for how to deal uh, with uh, refugees in our hemisphere. Uh, provides both assistance to sending countries, but also, you know, provides assistance to other countries. So there, there's a regional approach, uh, works with international partners and provides, you know, real refugee numbers for our hemisphere so that there are other ways of coming and, and um, more humane ways of dealing with people and processing people who cross the border. Um, so, you know, we have tried to be leaders uh, in, in that space and we've held hearings on uh, detention and on the treatment of families and children. We've had three hearings on the treatment of families and children uh, uh, at the border in our committee. Uh, and there are uh, many other committees have come uh, forward and have taken on. I've never seen any other committee in, in my 13-year uh, history on the Hill ever want to take on an immigration issue. Usually other committees are like, we don't want to deal with it. You, you deal with it. Uh, but now you've seen you know, other committees um, uh, government oversight and foreign affairs, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, tackle these issues. Uh, we had uh, the armed services tackle an immigration issue uh, in the hearing. Um, so, you know, we uh, we have lambasted the, you know, I mean, you can't you can't just lambast a Supreme Court decision. We were we expressed our strong disappointment uh, over it, and we do think that the decision is wrong. Um, as a legal matter, uh, I agree with you that there are two ways in which you can deny asylum for someone who crosses to another country, and, um, and those are spelled out by statute, and those statutory requirements have not been met in these cases. And so I just don't, you know, uh, really understand, you know, why the, the you know, 
why the Supreme Court did what it did, what it did. But you know, here we are, and we're not going to get a decision, you know, on the merits for quite some time. Um, you know, we can move a bill, and and I think we are thinking about having hearings on this issue and uh, maybe moving uh, that bill or other bills uh, in this space. But again, you'll you'll get a bill maybe that comes out of the house, and that and then it'll die there. So. I mean, that's the best we can do right now when you have control of one house. Okay, so Kim, uh, let <laughs> these two warriors now rest for a little while. So, uh, so I mean, you know, I think really as a reflection of how much this debate has changed, that states were considered kind of side spectators to the immigration policy debate for a number of years, and I said 14 AGs have brought action on the public charge. So it's suddenly it's become a big issue for states. You represent the largest state in the country uh, and run a social service program. So could you describe from your perch sort of how the developments in immigration, whether it's enforcement or the public charge, what kind of impact is it having on social services in a state like California? Sure. Yeah, thank you, and, and thank you uh, for the invitation to be here as well. I, I'll start with just a little bit of context uh, around California just to have a sense of, of maybe why you see such uh, passionate response and investment in a number of ways here that I'll talk about. 11 million of California's 40 million residents are foreign born. Uh, one in two children in California has at least one immigrant parent. 35% of California's civilian workforce is comprised of immigrants and immigrants are contributing $715 billion to California's economy. So in terms of California's uh, commitment and response, immigrant integration is a big part of what we do. You may have heard our, our governor, Governor Newsom's uh, essential trademark, which is California for all. It's a home to many newcomers, uh, and we certainly offer services that help immigrants become part of the social, economic, and civic fabric of our state. Um, and so in that, uh, it has been a busy uh, couple of years, uh, and uh, certainly, um, with this context and with uh, knowing our population across the state, there is significant and real fear in communities. You've been hearing all day about impact uh, on individuals and populations across the country, uh, and certainly in California, we have seen that uh, in, in the number and numerous uh, policies that have come um, from the federal government. Specifically, um, uh, just want to talk a little bit about response to public charge and uh, kind of what we're seeing as uh, proposed impact and what we're actually seeing as impact on the ground. Um, I want to note that uh, certainly, it is our belief, uh, and here's where we are, we're in agreement uh, with the Department of Home, Homeland Security, in the actual rule for public charge, there's a recognition and an acknowledgement that the public charge rule may cause worse health outcomes, increased use of emergency rooms, increased prevalence of communicable diseases across the country, um, increased rates of poverty and stability, lack of productivity, and educational attainment. Uh, the the uh, analysis that we've conducted in California is similar, that we actually see that and are seeing um, the direct 
impact on health and well-being of individuals and families that are subject to it. But I would also uh, state to you that it's not just those impacted and specifically called out in the rule, but also individuals who are not subject to public charge. And it's not just the public benefit programs that have been added to uh, who, which, which programs uh, would be considered, but it's also those who are participating in programs that it won't be considered. So, so the broad uh, cast of, of impact uh, and the complexities in, in interpretation that human service agencies across the country are needing to understand in terms of who it impacts and who it doesn't um, is, is significant. And uh, we certainly have not uh, uh, spent time uh, capacity building and human service providers of those intricacies, what we've done is we've invested in things like Im immigration, legal services, and remedies, right? $60 million investment this year, plus additional case management services that are focused on supporting populations to um, have an immigration remedy, whatever they might be eligible for. Eligible for. And that is the way in which uh, they can also be a resource. But um, you know, I think that, um, and there was just, I appreciate the, the comments uh, from David as well, right? The, the public charge rule that stands today um, certainly recognized the health and well-being benefits and who was targeted is different. So this is certainly going well above and beyond um, the intent. And, and certainly from a, from a human service, social service perspective, uh, the impact of our safety net on what it's actually supporting in terms of disrupting poverty is huge. The, just the nutrition assistance program, supplemental nutrition assistance program, our SNAP program, is one of the largest anti-poverty programs in the country. It's included here, but it's not just about nutrition assistance, it's also about the improved math and reading skills that, are, that will be at effect, the longer term outcomes, low birth rates, uh, increased graduation rates, and so forth, that really um, uh, we see as an outcome of having things like a, a SNAP program. I also just want to say that there's, there's some myths in terms of who's accessing these programs. Across the country, 87% um, of the SNAP recipients are households with, uh, are, have a child, a senior, or a person with a disability. That's about 74% in California. So again, who's being targeted and served um, truly are the most vulnerable in making those connections. So in terms of um, public charge, in terms of what we're seeing across some of these other um, proposals, uh, certainly we are anticipating and seeing uh, disenrollment from programs and therefore uh, the, the ripple effect that means for health outcomes, again, not only for those who are specifically uh, uh, targeted in any of these given uh, policies, but also those who aren't. It's just the broader health impacts um, of these policies across the state. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's significant. Uh, we have been very uh, mindful and thoughtful about um, looking at enrollment and what we do about it. Uh, and certainly um, there is a, a complexity of even describing who it does and doesn't apply to. And again, like I said, which programs uh, it applies to. Um, but also we're just trying to make sure we have trusted messengers and communities that are partners with government in, in being that messenger and having programs like two-generation approaches and home visiting um, to have the connections with families to talk through some of these complexities and in fact and sometimes enroll families uh, that or individuals that might be eligible for service. So it's a different strategy um, of, of uh, kind of going into the weeds and detail of, of what's being proposed versus um, actually making sure we're doing our due diligence and connecting to the services that we know make a difference for people across the state. Uh, great. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question about the DACA and TPS if, the, if it ends. Uh, obviously, the impact is going to be felt 
at the state level. What do you, what do you predict the impact is going to be on the state and on the residents, and is there a plan that the state of California has to respond to that? So uh, DACA for California has been tremendous. Uh, just in the last 18 months alone, 574,000 individuals have renewed their DACA uh, application. And again, I, I just mentioned the investment we had in immigration legal service providers to help assist with those renewals. We supported uh, renewal fees as well. And so we've had a robust investment in helping people uh, get engaged. And so the, the significant financial instability of households, um, I didn't mention uh, most of our households uh, across the state are mixed households, so having a different uh, status of, of various populations. That's 74% that's, uh, of our non-citizen populations in a household with a citizen. And so uh, we just, we just uh, know that the impact of, of the financial hardship, I mean, the, the prediction and, and estimates in California is that California business would, businesses would lose over a billion dollars uh, just in the turnover if DACA wasn't renewed. Uh, so it's a huge economic impact. I think also just um, studies that are showing the, the health impacts and the mental health impacts um, of, of the populations with the uncertainty of the pro program are real. And so uh, that's also a concern of ours, um, should that occur. <clears throat> yeah, let me ask you a, a kind of an obvious question that with the distrust of the government in general, especially among immigrant communities, especially during this administration, how is that affecting people's trusting the government of the state of California. Sure, yeah, as I mentioned, that, that partnership is key here. I mean, we, we have seen that. Uh, we, we've uh, looked at a number of strategies to try to mitigate uh, the, the disenrollment of benefits that we know are huge, again, in making the, the, an impact on, on people's lives. And in, that, in doing so, what we've also recognized is that the individual or family that walks into the social service office to disenroll in benefits that we're trying to connect to that legal service provider to determine whether or not it's actually applicable to their circumstance um, is a hard connection to make. That individual or family has made up their mind when they've walked into that office or made that phone call to disenroll. And so really, again, from our perspective, it's about uh, getting in front of that. It's about, again, that connection where uh, we have a number of rapid response networks across California uh, with the Know Your Rights campaigns and how do we ensure that the information about uh, applicability of public charge and how to get those connections are happening with those trusted messengers and communities. So it's certainly a public-private partnership from our perspective. Uh, and we are, in fact, uh, even investing in some of our e immigration uh, funding in that kind of outreach to connect with uh, individuals and families so that they understand what that is. But it is true uh, that, the, that it's a real, um, it's a re the distrust is real, the fear is real in communities, uh, and so that's, mm. that's how we've approached the So just on the distrust, and I'll sneak in a question about census, because it was on our topic. Luckily, we dodged the bullet. The Supreme Court said that the citizenship question will no longer appear. But the, just the, the narrative around that, is mm -hmm. that affecting the level of participation that you expect in the census? Yes, uh, I, think, I think so. We, we have um, a number of investments in this space, too, on, on how we conduct outreach, really recognizing what it means to have undercounts of populations here. And so um, it's, it's a similar strategy in, in really engaging with uh, trusted messengers, promotorist models, different, different models that are uh, connecting with community, but it is absolutely a real thing. When, when I talk to the fear, we actually have those stories of 
uh, individuals and families who truly are uh, disengaging from any kind of uh, community touch points at all, going without, you know, and that's, I think, a huge, a huge impact. We're talking about going without some basic necessities and services, but also just not connecting at all with, with uh, communities. So uh, it's a similar strategy that we're using in this space with the census, too, of, of really looking at those uh, community-based organizations and trusted messengers in community. Okay, great. Let me just do another round with you folks before we get to the mics. So Cecilia, first, I mean, you know, there was obviously a lot of euphoria soon after Trump came in, all these federal district courts all over the country issuing injunctions, people parading in the streets. And they were, but the dust has begun to settle as the cases have now come to the Supreme Court. Uh, a, do you agree with that, that the Supreme Court at the end of the day is now going back to the traditional deference to executive authority? And is that a surprise given that there has been a lot of deference to executive in immigration for a very long time? Um, <clears throat> I think the answer is that the Supreme Court has a mixed record at this point on Trump administration policies. Um, as you already pointed out, we won the census case, um, which was an ACLU case, uh, I should point out. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was the, the census case is an interesting counterpoint to Trump versus Hawaii, right? Because in both cases, you had a record which showed um, uh, cabinet level and lower officials trying to make up a rationale to justify the official action when the president was saying what he says um, on Twitter and, and in other public um, fora. And so, you know, in the Muslim ban case, we saw um, really a cynical um, decision, I think, uh, cynical in that the majority opinion purported to overrule Korematsu after, you know, 80 plus years, around 80 years. Um, but in reaching its decision on the Muslim ban, reified um, Korematsu in so many ways. It was really undeniable. And I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was very telling if you look at Chief Justice Roberts's opinion in Trump versus Hawaii, he refers to um, the states, um, the respondents, uh, you know, pointing to all these statements by the president, just expressing the most blatant anti-Muslim sentiment, um, and said, well, you know, let's set that aside. Uh, we got to think about how this ruling will affect any president, not this president, right? And so it was really disingenuous because the Supreme Court is setting forth the law. And the whole point is that they now are confronted with this president doing and saying what he's doing and saying, and yet they gave him a free pass. Um, and so I think it was, um, you know, they didn't, one thing I will say about Trump versus Hawaii, um, to the court's credit, is they did reject flat out uh, the administration's arguments that the court could not adjudicate the issue, right? They purported to apply um, the Mandel standard. Uh, is there a bona fide and legitimate reason given? Um, and the Fourth Circuit had done that as well um, and reached the different conclusion, you know, Mandel with teeth, Mandel not as an empty letter. 
Um, and the Supreme Court purported to apply Mandel and said, we are looking at the justification, but we find that the Muslim ban in its third watered-down version um, does pass muster. Um, in the census case, I was very worried that, you know, if you follow the reasoning of Trump versus Hawaii, um, you know, we had the Sec Secretary Ross in this case, you know, pretty blatantly um, up to no good. You know, I think the, he clearly lied um, in his testimony before Congress. Um, about the reasons for um, the citizenship question being added to the census. Um, he lied about whether the idea originated with the Justice Department or with his department. Um, and, um, you know, thank God, or, you know, thank Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, they, they reached the opposite conclusion in the census case. I think, um, you know, the, the kind of, again, to go back to the legal, legal realism lens, I think, you know, the census case is one where it was so, so political in a way that was so blatant, blatantly rigging, um, you know, uh, rigging the system for the next redistricting battle in favor of Republican states. Um, you know, maybe that also gave the majority mm -hmm. pause. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I'm I mean, though for intellectual honesty, I have to make a note, uh, just with a law school audience, that Supreme Court did not say that the administration did not have the authority to add a question. They just said they did not do it right way, mm -hmm. uh, just as a as a matter of record. But uh, uh, Kim, let me just turn to you before I turn to David for his last question. Uh, this is obviously, Europe is in the state of California, but this is a debate going on all around. Is there any coordination going on among states mm -hmm. to do this in a more cohesive way? Yeah. Yeah, there are, there, in addition to the litigation, and certainly our Attorney General uh, has been, uh, we call that partnering with other states um, in, in, in litigation efforts, but I would say more in a programmatic uh, space and, and what we're doing on the ground is really thinking about um, not only the, the legal service effort that I mentioned that both New York and Washington State also have uh, made investments in, but also in looking at uh, the broader immigrant integration strategy. So we're sharing and, and con combining strategies, resources, materials, not only related to how we're uh, doing communication around some of the proposed rules and policies, but also on the broader economic mobility strategies, education, uh, access to services, and so forth. So there's certainly uh, been some convenings and conversations for, for states that are interested and have that same priority uh, in the population that's been moving forward. Great. So those of you who want to ask questions, please get and line up there. We'll do this in exactly five minutes, and I will turn uh, for last question to David. So David, with all this lack of hope we have had all morning, but I hear there is some hopeful sign on some decent bipartisan legislation moving in the House. So we're, hope we're hopeful. Um, so, you know, um, we, as I noted earlier, we need to start laying the groundwork for bipartisan reform. Um, uh, you know, we've always put everything all together and always, you know, kind of attacked the issue uh, Comprehensively, as you know, it's comprehensive immigration reform, right? This is the the catchword, right? We've um, or phrase, um, uh, you know, this is there was a realization after this administration came into power that that was not likely, and so um, there have now been attempts to try to uh, 
move things in, in, in a more piecemeal kind of fashion, uh, the DMACC being one of those things. But um, here we're taking, there's been a group of members, a bipartisan group with some conservative Republicans and some less conservative or uh, liberal Democrats uh, kind of working on an ag labor deal. Um, this is an area where um, we think, you know, it is easier for Republicans to, you know, provide a path to legalization and, and, and you know, increase uh, the number of visas that are available, for example. And so um, uh, under the theory that you got to take baby steps sometimes before you can run, um, we have been working on, on a package that both provides a good legalization program for undocumented farm workers to come out of the shadows, um, that provides reforms to the current H-2A program to make it uh, kind of a more streamlined program, uh, kind of an easier to use, you know, uh, kind of more business friendly, but still protect workers kind of program. And uh, then uh, what, if we can get all that working, um, enforce it by, uh, and I'm afraid of the reaction from some in this room, but uh, by, by <laughs> also, <laughs> yeah, by also then, uh, you know, instituting mandatory verify in the agricultural sector um, as a kind of way of, you know, as, as the, kind of, those, are the, those are the trades. Um, and that is what bring, but again, you know, I, I don't believe that you're ever gonna get a legalization of the undocumented farm workers without doing the other two pieces, and so, in the interest of moving the ball forward, building bipartisan support, getting members to talk to each other and feel, you know, and feel like we can do things in this area, um, this is an effort that we think is worthwhile. It is very meaningful to me. Uh, something that I've wanted to champion for a really long time. Um, we're working with, you know, um, NGOs and you know, United Farm Workers and Farm Worker Justice, and then grower associations and uh, people across the political gamut. Um, anyway, so I'm very excited, uh, and I, I, I hope that we can at the very least pass out of the House. We have some conservative Republicans who are rooting for us to get it uh, out of the House so that they can take it, you know, uh, try to move it over in the Senate. It might, might come back differently than the way we send it over, but um, well, we'll see. But any, any reason to believe the Senate has an appetite to do this? Well, there are, uh, there are, uh, yes. And there are a lot of, um, well, there are, I, I'm not, you know, there are some important Republican senators who are in discussions with us and the Republicans that we're speaking to and who are rooting for us and know what our package looks like and uh, uh, would like to see it come out of the House and they think they can take it over there. Now, you know, will McConnell let it go to the floor? Will, you know, will this president and Stephen Miller see it and, you know, excuse my language, crap all over it and kill it? Yeah, I mean, that's very possible, but you got to try, right? Uh, but having seen this debate over the years, do you think that kind of deal making is a down payment for the larger deal at some point? I mean, I, th I think so. I think that the idea, I mean, our idea is this is a mini CIR, right? This, is, this, this holds the promise of comprehensive reform, right? You, you have a sector that clearly is dependent on, on immigrants. Um, you have a lot of very conservative Republican farmers who recognize that and go to their Republicans and say, we need these people, you can't just deport them. If you deport them, we close down and we can't just replace them. Uh, there are a million of them and, uh, and they know what to do, they know where to go, they know how to pick our crops and they feed our country um, and they're willing to take political hits. And they can, they can do things back at home and they can talk about that population in a way uh, uh, where they don't get the political blowback that you see in other areas and so we're hoping that by, you know, and they're taking, they're saying things that you would normally not hear a very conservative Republican say, and we're hoping that, you know, that takes. 
you know, people get comfortable with that. Um, and that, you know, if you can show how this can help improve that sector and, uh, you know, uh, both be business friendly and worker friendly and also enforce it in, in a way where it doesn't be, you know, you can argue that it's not a magnet for future uh, unlawful migration. And forgive me, <laughs> uh, I'm still stuck in uh, the old ways of talking. Um, um, you know, I mean, I, can I just say, I wanted to say one thing, because this, this might be useful. I know you said that we need to stop talking about, get, like, for example, we need to lose the phrase, get right with the law. You know, maybe, um, but I will say that you, you have to understand, if you're, gonna, if you're going to achieve political success on the Hill and get legislation through two houses and get it to a president to sign it, you have to understand the other side. Um, we're never going to get everything we want. It's just, I just don't believe that's ever going to happen. So you have to understand how to compromise. You have to understand what the other side wants. You have to understand what motivates them, how they think. And they do, you know, the, the, I've, you know this is, uh, many of you know that this is the way I think. Right? I think Democrats and Republicans, liberals and, and conservatives are kind of wired differently, right? We're, we're wired to be justice-oriented uh, and, and outcome-oriented. Like, what's a just outcome and how do we get there and how do we interpret a law uh, to make sure that it, is, it, it, result, it results in the most just outcome? And Republicans are really, at, they come at it by saying, what are the rules? You know, and it's black and white, and was, did you follow the rules? Did you not? What does the law say, and what, is, what doesn't it say? And that's just, that's the way they approach the issues. And um, once you understand that they, they have a real legitimate, some of them, some of them are motivated by other things. Um, um, but those who are motivated by just rule of law, and some of them are, um, you have to figure out how to deal with that. And it is about, you know, I mean, they get that the rules were antiquated and that there aren't pathways, legal pathways, to really meet our economic needs, but you still have to recognize that people did something unlawful or here unlawfully, and you can't just hide it. And so you have to provide a way to get right with the law or to become lawful or to at least legalize your status, however it is. I mean, that's... And, and to try, I mean, you're not going to be able to get around that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I think trying to do so uh, maybe creates even more distance between the two sides. So that's my take. But. Uh, okay, I, I know you want to speak, but I have. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, no, you can't. And I, and I, I, I hope that's. A, uh, two people at the mic, and maybe we'll get uh, sure. your, your answer <laughs> she, in she, to answer one. Oh, so, uh, Camille, do introduce yourself sure. uh, uh, and ask a question to who you want. Uh, hi, I'm Camille Mackler. I'm from the New York Immigration Coalition. Um, I have a question for Cecilia, but David, maybe we can speak more offline because I want to make a plug for year-round dairy farm workers in UH2A reforms. They're, they're um, in there. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll let them know. Um, Cecilia, I have, um, I guess my question is, given, especially with the backdrop of how this president and his administration is really just destroying what it means to be an independent judiciary. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, we see that every day in immigration courts, how many of these deportation orders are unjust in the first place. Um, but also how they're reshaping the judiciary, the, the, the bench, right, the federal bench. Um, I worry that all of these lawsuits eventually, the way that they are reshaping, the way the executive impacts and has th the enormous powers that they have on immigration policy, that it's going to backfire on us in, in the long term. Because A, if Congress doesn't get its act together, no offense, but not much hope either. <laughs> um, and so if we're stuck with this for the long haul and we're reshaping how the executive interacts with immigration policy through our courts, which they are themselves reshaping, it's just sort of 
very convoluted and complex and dangerous. And if you take it a step further, you know, you leave the beltway, you go into the communities. These are extremely hard decisions to message to communities. And when I'm sitting in an upstate New York County jail talking to a woman who got who came from Texas, got caught at the Canadian border, she got turned around when she was trying to flee because she heard that our president on TV said, we don't want asylum seekers. It's really meaningless that the Ninth Circuit said, well, living in Mexico is illegal, but you didn't prove your requirements for a, a TRO. Okay. So I guess I have two responses. One is, what's the alternative? If you don't challenge these policies, they are the law, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, yes, we should pick and choose our battles. We should be um, mindful of counting votes in the Supreme Court. We should try to figure out um, how to avoid certain uh, courts that are, we, we believe will be inhospitable. And there are different tactics we can use to try to do that. But I think at the end of the day, I'll start with my lesson one, uh, you know, in my, my, my opening remarks, which is we don't have any choice. Um, because if you don't challenge the, the policies, um, you, don't, you don't get relief. And they, they become the law. Um, of the eight major asylum policies um, that we've challenged through, you know, big systematic cases, um, all of them, except for the third, um, the asylum ban number two, um, are currently enjoined. And so, you know, I think we have to, yes, we should be careful about um, the collateral impact of losses as well as victories in litigation. That's certainly right. And I totally hear you about how we talk to affected communities about the lawsuits and orders in them. Um, but uh, and we should be careful about how we bring cases and which cases we bring. But I don't see any alternative. Otherwise, we'll be stuck with what we've got. My second, <laughs> my my second. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> the the second response is that. Um, actually, I have three responses. The second response is, you know, I, I actually think there's a limit to what an Article Three judge is willing to put up with. I think this president is extreme. I think we've seen plenty of Republican appointed judges, federal judges, um, ruling against this administration. And you know, the, the overall arc of immigrants' rights litigation and other litigation touching on, on the immigration power um, and more broadly foreign affairs power that's related um, is that, you know, I, I, I came back to the ACLU um, in 2004 to litigate against the George W. Bush administration's torture policy. And all we had to do was walk into court and hear the government lawyer, DOJ, say, I represent the United States national security. End of case. You're dismissed. And that's not the, the case anymore, um, even with Muslim ban, which doctrinally is a relatively tough case about the president's exercise exercise of power under 212F. And then finally, the third very quick point is, you know, I think, um, you know, our, our, our siblings in other social justice movements um, are thinking a lot about how to avoid the U.S. Supreme Court now. Um, a lot of them have more options than immigrants' rights advocates do in state court. But we do have state court avenues, and we've gotten a lot of interesting uh, results in state Supreme Courts on detainer policy under state constitutional law, for example, or through state legislative um, relief, as in California. So that's my three-part answer. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Madam, please introduce yourself. 
Uh, thank you. Penel Ibe with the American Friends Service Committee. My question is with regards to TPS and DED, and so I have sort of three questions for each of you. Hmm. So for California, <laughs> um, California has a large population of TPS holders, and just wondering what, whatever happens with the courts or inaction or action of Congress, is there a plan for the road to undocumented status? Because there's families involved, and like you said, it's multi-status families. Um, for you, Cecilia, I know I don't think ACLU is litigating on any of the cases, including we are actually oh, okay. doing one in Southern California. Mm -hmm. So, what is what does the the road look like? Mm -hmm. Is there a path to um, to the Supreme Court? The Ramos v. Nielsen hearing. One of the readouts was that it's more likely that the Supreme Court will take it up if the government requests it, mm -hmm. not the plaintiffs. And so, if you could just talk about the landscape for that and DED in particular. Also, in the context of foreign policy, because these are individual countries, and we hear like through the third country um, safe third country agreements, for example, El Salvador that was brought up. Like, what? How does that play into the decision? Um, can that be brought to a court? Like, what happens in the mm -hmm. courts? There's a whole lot. I don't know, but if you could share. And just for you, David, um, when you bring up TPS and DED in the room for like when you're trading and battering lives. What 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 does TPS bring up? Because that that is what is happening with the programs. And when immigrant rights advocates say, "Do not pit other immigrant communities against each other," we don't want you to uphold DACA and then throw enforcement into communities. How do you sort of make sure you represent that voice in the negotiations? Yeah, I mean, well, so Thank sorry, you. I don't know why I'm going it's first. Okay, go I know I have no idea why I'm going first. <laughs> Think more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm working on two hours of sleep. I've been traveling. I just want to say that. So, <laughs> so if you want to just this. very quickly, I, I've mentioned the investment that California's made in supporting immigration legal remedies for populations. We have, over the course of this multi-year investment, uh, targeted different populations and strategies. TPS has been one. So we've had focused dollars and commitment and resource uh, to support uh, those who are uh, uh, TPS, the TPS population across the state, and also just ensuring that we're not missing anything in terms of any other potential remedy that they might be eligible for in that connection. David? Okay. Um, so, uh, so one, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, like, I don't know, where, oh, there you are. Um, um, you, you know, TPS DED is in the DREAM bill. You know that, good. Just make sure. DREAM and Promise Act. Um, so, you know, I actually think it's easier to deal with TPS and DED than it is uh, even the, the dream population because of, um, one, how long they've been here in a lawful status. And so, you know, they're, it's just, it's an issue where a lot of Republicans didn't even know it existed. Uh, a lot of Democrats didn't know it existed until very recent, you know, until uh, the administration decided to, you know, no longer continue the, uh, to issue TPS designations. Um, so, you know, again, I just want to, I will reiterate that no matter what we do, it is likely going to require some kind of trade-off. That is just the way our institution is built. Um, it is not, uh, it's just, I, I just hope that what you're hearing is a reflection of reality and not necessarily, a, you know, an, uh, kind of a normative kind of statement. But, uh, you know, there were times where, um, so the big grouse or the gripe from the Republican side with TPS or DED is that it was a temporary program, and if you look at the statute 244, um, it actually it, there's a lot of there's a lot in there to actually say like, hey, we really mean this to be temporary, and indeed it actually says that any effort 
to move a bill to provide permanent residence to TPL, TPS, TPS holders excuse me, is subject to a point of order in the Senate. That's how much, right, the, when Congress passed it, they wanted to make sure that they, you know, they codified this idea that this is to be temporary and temporary only. So they're upset that it wasn't temporary and that every administration, you know, for, you've got DED holders for almost 29 years from Liberia uh, and TPS, you know, rightfully so, by the way. I am not trying to, you know, uh, but, that, that, uh, but that is their, you know, that is their gripe. And so there were times where there were um, offers to provide permanent status to TPS and DED holders, but change the statute to make it even more you know, uh, kind of just make it temporary, right? We mean, we mean it's temporary for real this time, uh, kind of language, you know. Um, and we've never moved forward with that. I'm not sure that that's even possible now because I think this administration would want a lot more than that. Um, but, you know, it was, it was one of those things where there's a lot of confusion on our side as to what a good deal is and what it isn't. You know, and if you were to ask TPS holders, a lot of them would say, that's a great deal, do it. You know, you get to sit, protect the people that are here now and you're potentially making it harder for people in the future to stay, but that's a trade-off worth making. Others don't agree. And then it splits us and we don't ever coalesce around a particular idea and so nothing happens. That's, that's just a real dynamic that, that I'm just trying to shed some light on. I, you know, I can't, I can't tell you now that I know what we would do or what the right uh, outcome is. I will say that I, if, I, hopefully if there's a cliff and there are people who have had status for, you know, 20 years or 30 years and they're about to lose it, that that, they, that will be an easier thing to get across the finish line, even if it's temporary. Okay, I have two minutes left and we didn't have much control over how we began this conference, but we have a lot of control over how we'll end it. Uh, so <laughs> I, just want to give, I just want to give last 30 seconds each to all our three panelists, that if you had to ask the, from your respect to purchase, if you had to ask this audience what they could do to improve or help the kind of work that you do, what would that be? Start with you, Kim. Well, I think since we're here, I, I'll, I'll tailor my message to the students, and that is uh, thank you for signing up and making this commitment. Keep going. Uh, I think one uh, thing I'm certainly grateful, in addition to the investment we've made, we've made an investment in capacity building. So fellowships, you know, really building the, com the capacity of the community to be present uh, and support populations in our larger immigrant integration efforts. So thank you for being part of that capacity uh, building effort, and, and please continue on that path. Okay, other than they're joining the ACLU, what could they do? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they're all members already. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll end with, you know, what I started with and rebut what David said. You know, I, I think... I knew it was coming. Look, I, I, I don't like to think of myself as politically naive. I, I really don't think I am. And I understand that anything that happens legislatively is going to be the product of compromise and there will be um, wins and losses involved. But, you know, when I say that we need to move beyond the language of lawbreaking and the frame of lawbreaking, um, I really mean that for those of us in the movement and hopefully for those of us who uh, those in Congress and in state houses who represent our views um, for those of us in the movement and immigrant communities. Um, you know, in the summer of 2014, um, you know, 
the Obama administration was talking about a surge and the President, Vice President, Secretary of Homeland Security declared that nobody coming from Central America was eligible for asylum and they would detain and then rapidly deport people explicitly for deterrence purposes. And it's not that far a leap from a surge to an invasion, and it's not that far a leap doctrinally from detention at Artesia and expedited removal to what we see now. Legally, I think there's a big difference. Um, and we sued the Obama administration in the summer of 2014, just as we're suing the Trump administration now. Um, but I think it's important for us not to buy into um, those frames. David, you get the last word. Sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, 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 just two things I, I want to say. One. Um, Belief, and having a belief system and, and being uh, true to your values is extraordinarily important. Um, but being true to your values and not having the power to do anything about it um, doesn't get us very far. Um, so, I mean, we need to be politically engaged. I think people need to vote. I mean, the fact that the Congress hasn't done much is a reflection of the fact that we control one house, and that is a reflection of the fact that we just haven't been able to win the Senate and we lost the presidency as well. Um, so, I mean, again, um, you know, some people didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because, and they voted for Jill Stein or someone else because they couldn't vote for her, and I'm, but there are, there are consequences to that, right? Um, um, so y you need for the people who stand up for immigrants to have power. Uh, you, you need that to happen um, if, that's, if that, those are the people you care about. And uh, the other thing I would say, and last thing, is challenge yourselves a little bit in the sense of, you, you know, What's difficult if you're in the hill, if you're on the hill, is that uh, you know we still don't, we don't you know we don't think of ourselves as gods and we, or we know what to do. We we have to go to the outside and go to the immigrant communities and NGOs to really understand what a good uh, trade is or a pol you know good policy is or you know we we need the support of the of the communities and if they're all over the place or if they're in a you know, kind of a no trade mentality, you know, we want to be pure, we don't, then it makes it very difficult for us to, you know, uh, to, to cut a deal of, of some kind. So I just say that because that's just something that I've recognized uh, in my time as well. So you at least need, you know, some voices on the outside, maybe not, you know, vocally, but at least in the room to be very pragmatic and to be able to help guide us in, in a way that, you know, we feel uh, that we can move forward okay. and that we're not violating our values. Sorry, thank you. Please help mm -hmm. me thank Kim, Cecilia, and David. <laughs>